Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that as we come to your word, learning more, um, believing things deeper from your scriptures, that you would apply these things to us, clarity of mind, conviction of heart, and a response of faith and joy. Our Father, we pray that you would um, be our teacher tonight. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I would invite you to open God's word with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And would also invite you to have the outline before you with a paragraph from the Westminster Confession, chapter 21. We'll be looking at section 5 tonight. How grateful we are to have a confession of faith that has a whole chapter on the worship of God. Also, how grateful I am to be part of a denomination that has worked hard on what does the scriptures say about worship. And so has written um, over the years a directory of worship, which all church officers uh, subscribe to. It's that important. We saw in the beginning of this chapter that God's prerogative is to tell us how he is to be worshipped. And so we approach him only by his revealed will and no other way, no other way that's not prescribed or directed by scripture. And how does the scripture tell us that we are to worship God? Well, in two large categories, word and prayer. God speaks to us in his word, and we speak to God in prayer. And everything else in the service can be found as a subset of those two. And as our directory of worship says, it's advisable that these parts alternate in the service because a worship service is really a conversation between God and his people. We've considered already two of the main elements of worship. The prayer is an element of worship, and scripture is an element of worship. Tonight we want to consider song and worship. And I've been meditating, wondering if this is really a subset of prayer, or is it a subset of word? Perhaps it's both. It's good to review why we do what we do in worship. It's not just tradition, it's not just preference, and certainly not just Presbyterian. Why do we do what we do? Look at section 5. The various elements of the ordinary religious worship of God are the reading of the scriptures with reverence, the sound preaching and conscientious hearing of the word in obedience to God with understanding, faith, and reverence, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, and the proper administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. Also, on special occasions and at appropriate times, there are other elements of worship, namely religious oaths, vows, solemn fasts, and thanksgivings. These are to be used in a holy and devout manner. We're going to be looking primarily tonight at the phrase, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, or you might say with the whole heart. The subject of singing and worship is a very large area, but we want to look at these general principles tonight, that the church has a duty to sing. Secondly, the church has a privilege to sing. And third, the church has guidelines to sing. And fourth, the church has an audience to sing to. If we get those four in place, that'll pretty well cover most of the questions about song in worship. Consider, first of all, with me, the church has a duty to sing. 
If I were to ask you what is the command that's most often repeated in Scripture, what would it be? Some might say, well, do not be afraid, and perhaps that is. But the command to sing would be the second most common command in Scripture. Thirty-nine times we're commanded to sing. Another 32 times it's declared that we will sing. Johnson writes, no command is more frequently and emphatically imposed upon God's people in the Old Testament than is the duty of singing praise to God. In the New Testament, these commands are renewed and made emphatic. The church has a duty to sing. When we see the importance of singing, we will realize it is a duty. The importance of singing, first of all, the Bible tells us that our God sings. And so our singing is simply joining with the triune God. God the Father sings. He rejoices over you, his people, with singing, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God the Son, even now our Savior, sings over us. Hebrews 2.12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. He joins with our song, Romans 15.8, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. So in our singing, we're joining Christ, the head of the church, in his song. Remember, as he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he went out himself singing a hymn, Matthew 26, 30. And God the Holy Spirit works in the heart of each believer with spiritual songs. Our God is a singing Lord, one who joins us and leads us in triumphant song. And a quote, so we reflect back to God in praise. That's why it's a duty to sing. The importance of singing is that we are to sing about redemptive history, what God has done in the history of redeeming his people. It's always celebrated with song. The church is commanded, sing a new song when God has acted in redemptive history. Six times that's a command in the Psalter. When God worked in redemption, his people celebrated in song. Think of the victory over the Exodus and Miriam's song recorded in scripture, Exodus 15. Or Deborah's Military victory celebrated in song, Judges chapter 5. Psalm 78, Psalm 106, Psalm 137. Why were they written? To celebrate God's delivering Israel from captivity. Zechariah anticipated the birth of his son, John, and wrote a song. Mary, at the birth of Christ, wrote a song. Both are recorded in Scripture, the Gospel of Luke. New songs, whenever God is working in history. That's the importance of the song in heaven. Right now, the church in heaven is singing Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 14.3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The church in heaven is singing a new song to Christ. 
and to our triune God and celebration of the gospel. But that's what's been anticipated all the way through redemptive history. Isaiah 35, 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It says again, Isaiah 51. Isaiah 52, break forth together with singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. We have a duty to sing. Psalm 149, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the congregation of the saints. Whenever we gather for worship, we are to sing a whole book of scripture. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs, some of them now some 3,000 years old. In the Old Testament, there was a sub-office of the priests, the Levites, that were trained singers to lead God's people in worship. It was that important. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul instructs the church in Corinth when you gather together, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, sing hymns. Music and singing and worship is not entertainment. It's not a filter. It's a duty commanded by God. It's a remarkable privilege because we're singing to our triune God, celebrating his works of redemption and his great importance of the church now and in the life to come. And so our directory of worship says congregational singing is a duty and a privilege to be practiced and cultivated in all the churches. Let every member of the church take part in this act of worship. So don't be shy about it. Don't be self-conscious. Maybe you don't have musical training. Maybe you have a bad ear. doesn't matter. Open up the hymnal and sing. And all of our voices together are received by God as worship. The church has a duty to sing. And secondly, the church has a privilege to sing. Are you aware that the Reformation restored congregational singing to the church? It was Pope Gregory who removed singing from the congregation and transferred it singing to only the priests and the choirs who represented the priests. All singing was in Latin, and the people could not understand, most people could not understand Latin. It was the Reformation that came with not only the rediscovery of the gospel by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, but it was also a great reformation of the church and its worship. And with all the differences between the reformers about what do we sing? Do we sing only the psalms or psalms plus hymns? Do we sing with instruments or without instruments? With all of their differences, and John Calvin, by the way, wanted trained musicians in worship but it was the Geneva Council that didn't want to pay for them, that he didn't get the trained musicians. Luther didn't have that opposition, so consequently German Lutherans had much better church music than the Zwinglians and the Calvinists of Switzerland. But with all their differences, what was common? Singing was returned to the congregation. Singing was returned to the people. John Calvin believed that the congregation was the church's first choir. Not the only choir. He kept a trained choir for teaching the congregation how to sing the psalms. Do you, do you view yourself that way as we gather for worship? You're part of a choir as we bring the worship 
to God. Singing is to be done by the people. And secondly, worship is to be done in the language of the people. This was the other great change of the Reformation. They, yes, they used tunes that were familiar to the people, but the greatest change was putting the congregational singing in the language of the people rather than Latin. And so Luther in Germany translated, wrote hymns into German based upon the priesthood of all believers. And some have said that the spread of the gospel in Germany was as much due to the singing of hymns as it was to the printing press returning the right of the people to sing praise to God. One Jesuit priest commented and said, quote, Luther persuaded more people with his hymns than with his sermons. Singing is to be done by the people and the language of the people. Singing is to be done by the church Catholic. We profess to believe one, the church is one holy Catholic church. And Catholic has two dimensions. Yes, it's the church through all nations, all places. But it's also the church through all time and history. And that has to apply to music. When we sing the hymns, we're to sing the hymns of the church Catholic. The whole history, past and present. Quote, in the age of amnesia and chronological snubbery, we want our worship to have a memory. So we sing hymns from the whole history of the church. We declare our faith in the words of the great universal creeds of the church. We remind ourselves that we walk a path which others have walked. Our faith is their faith. Our hope is their hope. Our God is their God. As David Gordon writes, Anti-traditionalism, per se, the rejection of all contact with the previous experience of Christianity, is therefore not Christian and is certainly incompatible with the Apostles' Creed. It's unchristian to reject out of hand all connection to the rest of the Catholic Church as though their prayers, examples, faith, hope, or yes, hymns, could not possibly be expected to assist us. The Church has a duty to sing. The church has a privilege to sing. And third, the church has guidelines to sing. What we sing is extremely important. There was a preface in the old Trinity hymnal that said, it's well known that the character of its song, almost equal with the character of its preaching, controls the theology of a church. Look at Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the two things that we're to sing? We're to sing, first of all, the word of Christ, as we meditate upon it. And then secondly, as we've meditated on the word of Christ, we're to respond with the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what does it mean that we're to sing the word of Christ? As you deeply meditate on the word of Christ, that will become the source of your singing. This phrase, the spoken word of Christ, is only found here in the New Testament. And it's not per se a synonym for written scripture as we would refer to the Bible as the word of God. The word of Christ here is not reference to written scripture. It can either be a reference to his teaching while he was on earth, which 
He promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind to the apostles and that they would then turn right scripture. So yes, it becomes scripture as the apostles write it, the teachings of Christ, the word of Christ while he was on earth. Or it's the sense, the word about Christ, the gospel, as the individuals and as the church collectively reflects on the salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, it's going to bring joy, it's going to bring insights, it's going to bring application, it's going to bring new songs. And perhaps it's both. As you re- we can sing the written scriptures wherever they are, and we can sing new songs as the church meditates on the work of Jesus Christ in a response of gladness and joy. We're to sing the word of Christ. And then out of meditating upon the word of Christ and all that he has done, we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let's ask, first of all, what's, what's the meaning of these three terms? They overlap, they're used interchangeably. The first, songs, psalms, you might think is just a synonym for songs. It's a Greek word that's used to translate the Greek Old Testament, seven he- different Hebrew words. It's just a general word referring to a song of almost any sort. Yes, it can include the book of Psalms of the Old Testament, but it can refer to all songs generally, broader than the 150 book of Psalms, just as the term judges is a lot broader than just the Old Testament book of judges. So songs, think songs. Second word, hymns. And this synonym here in modern English would just be religious songs. Again, it's a Greek word that's used to translate five different Hebrew words ranging from praises and prayer and song. It's a word that's used for any religious song. Even pagans had hymns. The Romans would sing hymns to their gods. It's just a general word for religious songs. Of course, we're applying them to the true God and to his work in Christ. And the third expression, spiritual songs, you might think is, we could translate that, sacred music. Again, the word songs is a broad word. It translates six different Hebrew words ranging from burden to song to psalm. But it's modified by spiritual. So, because a song is just general, But it's a spiritual song referring to the Holy Spirit as he gives wisdom, as he gives insight into the work of Jesus Christ. Then from that will come your singing, spiritual songs. It's the same way that Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 2.13. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So you see, Paul is just... Repeating again, sing, 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 music, music, music. He's not speaking here of Old Testament 150 psalms. The the terms are too fluid. They overlap. Paul is not referring to the 150 psalms with this phrase any more than every time you see the word judges in the Bible, it must refer to the book of Judges. John Piper, in his commentary on this phrase, writes, Along with the singing of scripture, there's to be a continuing flow of new and fresh expression of musical praise and worship that faithfully teaches and admonishes the church as we sing to the Lord our God. 
So it doesn't refer to the 150 psalms of the Old Testament. Yes, we can sing them, and we should sing them. Reformers taught the church to sing the psalms. John Calvin was the father of the Psalter for public worship in Geneva. As Gerstner put it, to say that John Calvin was the father of the Psalter is to say the same thing because he becomes known as the writing of the Psalter for worship. First Psalter was published in 1551. In 11 years, the complete edition was published. What was the first book published in America? 1640 was the Bay Psalter, the Old Testament Psalms to be sung in worship. But Calvin didn't object to the other Reformed churches in Strasbourg and Constant singing extra-biblical hymns as well as song. John Calvin embraced the position of exclusive psalmody as his personal preference. He thought it would be safe to sing scripture, but not because exclusive psalmody was commanded in scripture or required by the regulative principle. In fact, under his leadership, the church in Geneva sang non-psalm portions of scripture like the Ten Commandments, They sang extra-scriptural settings of the Apostles' Creed. It was his personal preference, but he didn't require exclusive psalmody for all the churches. Hughes wrote, quote, One can be sure that Calvin had no objection if in other churches hymns other than psalms were sung. His use of the exclusive psalmody was a matter of preference. We believe this phrase is not telling us to only sing the Old Testament Psalms, because Paul's audience, either in Ephesians or Colossians, and those are the only two places this phrase occurs, these three terms occur, they wouldn't have understood it as the Old Testament book of Psalms. Nowhere else in the Bible are these three words referring to the book of Psalms. Nowhere in the Bible is this a way of referring to the 150 Psalms as a corpus that is the Psalter, or of the 150 psalms conceived individually, end of quote. When the New Testament refers to the book of Psalms, they'll either say it, the book of Psalms, or they'll say the Psalms, or they'll refer to a specific Psalms in Acts 13, as it's written in the second Psalm. But nowhere this phrase, this is not used as an expression to refer to the 150 psalms of the Old Testament. And especially if you tie the two together, if you tie letting the work of Christ dwell in you richly, meditate upon the gospel, meditate upon the word of Christ, and that's going to be the source of your singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if you can only sing Old Testament psalms, how can you sing the name of Jesus Christ. You can't even mention his name because the Old Testament Psalms don't mention him by name. If you're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as the source of your singing, and if you can only sing the Old Testament Psalms, that means you'll never sing the name of Jesus Christ. But he's the center of all of the Old Testament hopes. He's the focus of the gospel. It procured our salvation, the king, the head of the church. He's the center of redemptive history. He's the one that's being worshipped now in heaven by name, by the angels, the lamb who is worthy. Aren't we to pray now in the name of Jesus Christ? Yes. Don't we hear sermons now calling him to worship his name? Yes. Why can't we sing his name in worship? 
to say, to say that the New Testament songs and worship must only be the same as what an Old Testament Jewish synagogue would sing, not mention the name of Jesus Christ, that strikes me as profoundly out of accord with all the fulfillment of Old Testament types and shadows. That's the argument of the writer in Hebrews 12. You haven't come to Mount Sinai in worship. You don't primarily look backward as your standard and rules for worship. Where have you come? You're joining with Mount Zion in heaven, with the church already singing the praises to Christ. You look forward as your primary focus on worship. We, our rules and patterns for worship is what the church is already doing in heaven around Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. And so our directory of worship, I think, has a good balance. Congregations do well to sing the metrical versions or other musical settings of the psalms frequently in public worship. Congregations also do well to sing hymns of praise that respond to the full scope of divine revelation. And so we should sing the Old Testament psalms, and we try to frequently, but we sure sing a lot more than that through the history of the whole church as it reflects on the gospel and the the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has a duty to sing. The church has the privilege to sing. The church has guidelines to sing. And fourth, the church has an audience to sing to. We see it in our text that certainly there's a benefit of mutual uh, teaching and encouraging with singing, Colossians 3.16. So certainly there's going to be that horizontal benefit. And how often have you been encouraged as you're in the, in the middle of a congregation and the congregation is singing a hymn and it's stirring and it, it's very meaningful, a response of faith. Certainly there's going to be that benefit. But the primary focus, the primary purpose of our singing is vertical. The text goes on. It's in thankfulness to God. Do all these things to God, Colossians 3.17 with thanks through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to sing to God, Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving praise to his name. Psalm 98, 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The standard for all of our worship, including or worship, the singing is primarily God is the primary audience. He's the one addressed. He's the one to please. He's the focus of our praises as we come before him with joy and worship and solemnity. If you get the audience right, if you understand who we're singing to as the reference point, then a lot of the questions about music will fall into place. If God is the primary audience that we're singing to, that means several things. It means, first of all, our music must have transcendence and reverence. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. What is the church singing in heaven? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 
Reverence will affect our worship and all the elements of worship from beginning to end. It means we're going to bring our best. It means we're going to become prayerfully. We're going to become with focus. Certainly in the New Covenant, our worship is to also express the great grace of the gospel, the joy of forgiveness of sins, that it's a free gift offered to all those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gives us song in the heart, and that will affect our worship. But joy is not the same as familiarity. Joy in worship is to never replace glory, a sense of awe, and a sense of reverence. Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is the consuming fire. Leland Riken said earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and play at our work. Today, the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. To which David Gordon added, his, his observation is truer now than when he first made it, as a new generation now witnesses a new oxymoron for the first time, playful worship. We cannot deformalize or deritualize worship without turning it into play. R.C. Sproul's wisdom The thing I look for above all else in church music is the sense of transcendence. Music and worship shouldn't familiarize God to me, but rather music should stimulate the soul to a posture of adoration. Worship is to be God-centered and therefore a sense of transcendence. Secondly, our worship must be well done singing to God. Psalm 33.3 plays skillfully with a shout of joy. It's done for God. Musicians are prepared. We're all to bring our best. We're all to sing with a shout of joy. Psalm 33.3, shout joyfully to the Lord. All the earth rejoice, sing praises, sing to the Lord with harp, the harp, the sound of psalm, with trumpets, the sound of a horn, sing joyfully before the Lord our God. Congregational singing must never be the dirge of a funeral home. If you can't sing the music to a psalm, if it sounds awful, it's distracting from the words, and it's distracting from singing joyfully. Don't sing it. Our music is to be done well. If we're singing to God, thirdly, it means that our music is to be in sincerity. Amos 5.21 God says to Israel, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. The Father is seeking such to worship him in spirit and in truth. So our directory of worship says God's people should sing, not merely with the lips, but with understanding and grace in their hearts, making melody to the Lord. So when you sing, when you open up the hymns, mean what you say. Reflect on what you're saying. Don't let the mind wander. This is too important. Music is God-centered. So our music is to have transcendence. Our music is to be well done. Our music is to be in sincerity of heart. And fourth, if our music is God-centered, Another way of saying the same thing, our music is not about us. 
It's one of the most basic principles of the Christian life. The sooner you learn it, it's not all about you. It's about Christ and how much our worship. It's not our feelings. It's not self-expression. We're not singing about ourselves. Church music should not be about testimonials or feelings or subjectivity or emotionalism. It's about Christ and what he has done for his people and our response of gratitude. Nick Needham's insight on subjectivity. Quote, subjectivity in worship is the tendency to construct and evaluate worship in terms of the human subject, human experiences, feelings, and responses, rather than in terms of the divine object, God, the blessed self-revealing trinity and his will word and activity. This subjectivity takes various forms, but they all share in common the view that worship is essentially something we experience rather than something we offer, and that the quality of that experience is how you measure effective worship. Paraphrase, how did you feel about it? It's the bottom line whether that's been a good worship service. That's the way so many are teaching. And the Bible says, no, that's not about, it's not about you. It's about Christ. Our music is vertical. To be singing worthy is the lamb who was slain. David Gordon writes, music is socially and sociologically significant. We sing about what's important to us. Nations compose national anthems. Each branch of the American Armed Services has its own song. Lovers compose love songs. The European soccer fans boisterously sing the songs of their respective teams throughout soccer matches. Music may be religious or profane, sublime or mundane, pious or pernicious, but music is not insignificant. It would not be a universal reality in all cultures if it were insignificant. Singing to the Lord is the most common, repeated command in Scripture. It's significant. It's an element of worship. Singing is one of the ways that we express to God the intimate fellowship that we have with him because of the work of Jesus Christ which we've received by faith alone. Let's reflect more on our singing. What we're doing, we're each to sing. And we're to sing with zeal and pleasure and insight and thinking and prayer. Never go through the motions. Never let your mind wander. It's too important part of worship. It's not a filler. It's not to create a mood. It's an expression of worship to God. Do you know the joy of the gospel? Tonight, it would be my privilege to show you the work of Jesus Christ so that you would know the song of the gospel. It really is a song. And that's what we do in worship. It's our joy to sing to our God who created and redeemed us and who is bringing us home to Christ. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Shall we pray? Our Father, we confess that the tendency is to treat singing so often as just routine. It's part of the program. 
and we do not reflect on, as we should, on its significance in history, the significance in scripture, the significance in redemption. Cause us, our Father, to hear again this call to sing with joy and to sing with strength and to sing with praise and worship for all that who you are and for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray, our Father, that each one will know the song of the gospel and it will reflect in the way we come to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.